Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 71, and Shaka has just been installed as a Zulu regent in 1812. There's debate about this as the year. Some say it was more like 1816. However, I believe historian Dan Wiley's earlier date is probably the right one. By the way, 1812 is the same year that Napoleon advanced on Moscow in his disastrous Russian campaign. How dating worked in Southern Africa prior to the use of the Gregorian calendar requires quite a bit of explanation. Folks have asked me how this all worked. How did the Khoikhoi or the Zulu keep track of important months? They didn't really think in days, as you're going to hear. It's quite a story, and so let's start with traders Francis Farewell and Henry Francis Finn. They fixed Shaka's installation as Zulu chief, happening in 1816. Once again, we don't have a firm year if you analyze this using the Zulu lunar calendar. Farewell and Finn came to 1816 by counting the number of annual umkozi, or first fruit ceremonies, that Shaka was supposed to have officiated, which was eight before the hunters arrived in 1824. Zulu oral tradition marked months peppered with important events, the birth of a king, death of a king, drought, flood, and so on. Before the introduction of the Gregorian calendar, the Isu Zulu calendar was mainly based on the cycles of the moon, like many cultures across the globe. Zulu months are dated from the appearance of the new moon, which means that months are 28 days long and there are 13 months in the year. The Zulu names of the months are usually derived from phenomena occurring in the natural world. Take the first month of the Zulu year, which begins with the new moon of July, Nkwaba, which means glossy green or attractive, perhaps linked to the fact that the Zulu burn the felt on the mountains at this time and the first shoots that appear after the burn are deep green. An alternative name for July is Nkloyile, the Zulu name for the yellow-billed kite, a bird that returns from wintering up north during July. The problem is, these days, the kite usually shows up in early August because of climate change. In November, for example, Zulu used the phrase Izibantlela that begins with the new moon. Uzibantlela comes from the verb ziba, which means to pretend, deceive or mislead, and the noun intlela, referring to a path or pathway. While Zulu oral historians are not entirely sure of the origin, it's thought the name refers to the covering of the roads and paths by grass and weeds, which grow quickly in November, stimulated by the summer rains. Things are changing now because the shifts in climate temperatures have thrown the system out of whack. The month of Unchlaba, in the conjunction of April and May, takes its name from the noun Inchlaba, which is Zulu for the aloe, a plant famous across Zululand, and this used to flower at about April or May. In modern times, however, the Inchlaba flowers later, more like June or July. In the natural world, there are three obvious units of time, the day, the month and the year. The day, of course, is universal, whereas the lunar month is the period during which the moon goes through all its phases, taking each new moon as the start of a new month. And a month must contain a whole number of days. So although the moon rise and fall, or lunations, take around 29 and a half days, months are started after either 29 or 30 days. You can see this will lead over some time to undercounting problems. The solar year, technically known as the tropical year, is the time between two equinoxes, but this can be observed by the passage of the seasons outside the tropics, of course. In pre-modern society, the moon was crucial. These three units of time, the day, the month, the year, don't fit together evenly. 
A tropical year is 365 and a quarter days, so 12 lunations or lunar months will be around 355 days, whereas 13 lunar months are 384 days. Sorry if that's confusing, and of course, even to the folks using this system, it can be. I'll explain more. To resolve this mismatch, a society uses more than one system to replace the lunar month with an arbitrary month, as in the Gregorian calendar, or use an arbitrary year, as with the Islamic calendar of 12 lunar months. The Zulu and the Qosa, as well as the Tswana, use both lunar and tropical years, while the Hebrew and Chinese calendars add something known as intercalation. They insert an extra month to keep the calendar year synchronized with the seasons, and this is done mathematically, whereas the Zulu technique observes the natural world, the equinoxes then interpolates. The amazing thing is that the lengths of the lunation and tropical year are known accurately, and then it's possible to work out regular cycles, which will rectify these imbalances over a number of years. So linked to the moon, we have what's called a metonic cycle. That is a 19-year cycle of 235 lunar months, or 12 ordinary years and 7 special years that fall at year 3, 6, 8, 11, 14, 17, and 19. This fantastic numerical system was discovered independently in Babylon, Greece, and China, but not by Southern African ancient societies. The latter automatically fixed the misstep every few years by simply inserting a special month. More about that in a moment. What that means for us is it's more difficult to pin down exact years, as you've heard in recent podcasts, involving the development of the Zulu Kingdom. To give you an idea how diverse calendar-keeping was in Southern Africa, the Amakosa used traditional names for months of the year that came from names of stars. They also used plants and flowers names that grow or seasonal changes that happen at a given time of year in Southern Africa. This is similar to the Zulu. The Amakosa year traditionally begins in June and ends in May when the brightest star visible in the Southern Hemisphere, Canopus, signals the time for harvesting. But the Khoikhoi used Pleiades not cannabis, and yet the Khoi and Khoza lived cheek by jowl for centuries. But they still used two different constellations to trigger their important days. The Zulu used Pleiades too. The Pleiades are a group of more than 800 stars, about 400 light-years away from Earth in the constellation Taurus. They are also called the Seven Sisters, and appear in the northwest sky over Zululand. And the name Seven Sisters comes from Greek mythology. They were the daughters of Atlas and Pleione, who were changed into the stars. Most peoples of Southern Africa use the rising of Pleiades as the moment of a definitive reset in the calendar. Some South American Indians, for example, use the same word for Pleiades and a year. So there is an extremely ancient link between Pleiades and humans on planet Earth. This use of astronomical observations is well attested throughout Southern Africa, and so the two heliacal risings of note were Pleiades and Canopus. Canopus is the brightest star in the southern constellation of Corinne and the second brightest star in the southern night sky. Just out of interest, Canopus is sometimes used as a guide in the attitude control of spacecraft because of its angular distance from the sun and the contrast of its brightness among nearby celestial objects. There is a tradition amongst the southern Tswana of keeping watch for the rising of Canopus, which takes place in early June, and then a prize was awarded for the first sighting in pre-colonial societies. Canopus 
was also connected to male initiation and rainmaking. Simultaneously, and over a wide area of southern Africa, the Pleiades were connected to the time of cultivation. Henry Calloway in 1870 quotes a Zulu informant as saying that the Isilamela or Pleiades dies and is not seen this during winter, and at last, when the winter is coming to an end, it begins to appear, one of its stars first, and then three, until going on, increasing, it becomes a cluster of stars, and is perfectly clear when the sun is about to rise, and we say, Isilamela is renewed. And so we begin to dig, said the old man, and the rising of Pleiades constellation heralded the start of spring. Other local twists took place in Zululand. For example, some men would use the sighting of Pleiades in the early hours of the morning, returning from a drinking party, and then the order would go out for ploughing of the fields to begin. The early rising farmers would also see the same, and the entire stellar system would have to be seen before this took place, not just one or two stars. So, the Zulu and the Tosa and the Tana based their traditional months on case-by-case observation, the absence of a mathematical system means the most common arrangement is for months to be named according to the observed seasonal phenomena, with adjustment being roughly empirical. That is, by occasionally naming a month out of sequence, normally skipping or repeating a month to fit the observations. This applies to both the 12 and 13 month systems. It's like soldiers marching. When one goes out of step, he or she skips a little and gets back into the right rhythm. The Zulu also used what were known as Houses of the Sun. They identified both the winter and summer solstices within a few days by observing sunrise from the same location every day. The point of sunrise will move along the horizon until it appears to stop for a few days at one or other extreme, which is the solstice, then reverses and heads back across the northern skyline, back to midsummer sunrise, which is almost directly east. The horizontal calendar was known in southern Africa, and amongst the Zulu, the periods of apparent rest were known as the winter and summer houses of the sun. In all southern African cultures, this has made dating more difficult to pin down because the names of the months have also changed over time. The Zulu case is better understood than most partly because it was still in use when the colonial government began deploying the dates for example, in the early 19th century, and this caused labor relations problems. Because Zulu workers interpreted a month in employment in lunar terms, which led to serious disagreements with employers when they were not paid after 28 days, the employers sticking to their Gregorian calendar end-of-month payment method. The Zulu would merely look at the moon and then demand payment based on its waxing and waning. The Zulus also kept count by using something called tally sticks and would bundle these for tens and twenties and so on. So the Zulu lunar calendar was checked by a number of natural signs, including the nesting season of the black-shouldered kite or nkwaba, which is now in August instead of when it used to be, in July, as well as the river willow or mfufu, which flowers in October, and the rising of Pleiades in the night sky, which is in Shangula, and that's in June. Then the wise men would gather every two or three years when the area approximates to a month and there would be an argument about the correct month, which would be settled by popular consensus rather than by royal decree, and this extra month would be given a name. This extra month also caused what is known as a period of uncertainty and sometimes known as the Ididam Doda, the month that puzzles people. Leap years continue to puzzle many, 
catching us out as we had that extra day in February. Is it 28 days this year or 29? Didam Doda strikes again. In Nguni culture, some important rituals were fixed by the moon, such as the presentation of a newborn child to the homestead. Even after the introduction of the Gregorian calendar, the traditional lunar system remained in use. All fascinating, I'm sure you'll agree. With that, it's time to return to Shaka, installed apparently in 1812 as King of the Zulus. As I mentioned, historian Dan Wiley has done a great deal of research into this state, and he believes it must have been slightly earlier than 1816, the dates put forward by traders Farewell and Finn. The reason is that Shaka was able to field a large force to defeat his enemy, the Ndwandwe, by 1819. He would have needed more than three years to build up an army capable of achieving this, because it took a year to organize each Amabuto. He'd need more than three to defeat the Ndwandwe. Secondly, Shaka was forced to retreat from the Ndwandwe twice before defeating them, and at this time it was likely that only one long-distance raid could be completed a year. The Ndwandwe would therefore need about five or six years to expand as rapidly as they were reported to be doing at this time. Thirdly, Shaka was involving himself in local politics and intervening in neighbors' issues, which would have also taken longer than a couple of years to manage. So, back to the story. In the first few years of his reign, Shaka operated under Dingizwayo of the Mtetwa. They had fought as allies many times, and what emerged was an alliance against the Ndwanwe. Then they began expanding south, coercing polities to join them by using negotiated intervention and then attack or taxation. They wanted to create a large support nation, tapping all the resources of the region. They needed men to fight and trade, and women to plant and build, and to create children to increase their power. Sources say that Chaka first turned his attention to the people living between the White and Black Umfulosi rivers, the buffer zone between the Mtetwa Zulu and the Ndwanwe. From east to west, they included the Mpanza, the Sabia, the Zungu, the Mabaso, the Makoba, and the Butelezi. By now, most listeners would start to recognize modern family names, Mabasu, Makoba, Butulezi in particular. That's no coincidence. Their ancestors go way back beyond the Shaka's time. While we know where these people lived, pretty much along the Mfolozi, with the Mpanza furthest east, the exact location of others, such as the Pisi, the Mtumkulu, the Kungebe, the Mbuyene, the Kulu, and the Sikakani, are shrouded in mystery. And amongst the first wave of groups brought under Zulu control were the Butelezi, which is why today the name is synonymous with Zulu power politics. It's thought that the Butelezi had conquered the Zulu in Jama's time, prior to Senzanga Kona, and they gave allegiance to Shaka without resistance. Pungashi was the Butelezi chief, and he was apparently in awe of Shaka from the earliest days. The story goes that a Zulu impi was on its way across the Intlazachi ridges, and Pungashi sent white oxen with the message, We do not want war. Shaka is reported to have responded, Yeah, my Zulu brothers, he fears the line of Zululand. He says he will not fight the Zulu nation. He is a man, this Pungashi. He will survive to a great age. The army will never go against him again. And that is true. And this is why leaders like Mangusutu Butelezi continue to wield power within the Zulu traditional sphere. So Shaka now lifted his eyes and viewed the Inchalini across the White Mfolosi with interest. They were going to fight back. Shaka never managed to ensure their allegiance throughout his period of rule, although they were in his backyard. 
They had already conquered Zwede of the Ndwandwe before Shaka took over as Zulu regent. We'll come back to their story later. One of the most important people who created much of the Shaka myth later were the Zungu people who lived just above the confluence of the White and Black Mfulosi rivers. Close to them were the Makoba, who also became problematic for Shaka. Their region was lush, ideal for cattle and farming, and naturally their territory was eyed with interest. A succession dispute led to one faction calling in Zwide of the Ndwandwe, while the other headed off to Shaka. There were marriage connections between the Zungu and the Zulu, since Zangakona had ensured this. It's what happened next that has tainted Shaka in the eyes of the Zungu. Oral tradition says a wife or wives of Zungu chief Mchichi Zelwa refused to give Shaka a drink of water on a hot day, saying, Go and lap it up from the stream yourself. And then they laughed at him. Shaka sent an impi around to kill the woman, and during the raid he had clabongered with some of the Zungu girls, basically raped them. One reportedly was impregnated by Shaka, but Dingazwaya shrugged off the story, saying, What can I do? Mchichi Zalwa fled his muzi after the incident. This, of course, is a political story. It's not just social abuse, because Shaka immediately supported the installation of Sidi Nanda and gave him a Zulu bride. There are a few rape stories involving Shaka in Zulu oral tradition, which we believe could be true, but could also be a metaphor for political conflict not just the story about his proclivity for sexual assault. The Zungu joined the Zulu and became more than just another group of men fighting, just another Obuta. No, they became known as the Amaenkenechani, the wild dogs, and survived as a regiment all the way through to Tsechuayo, who was going to fight the British. One of their offshoots were the Mpungos, the most famous of Zulu outfits. Zwide was furious when he heard what Shaka had done to the Zungu and sent his Ndwandwe regiments to attack the Zulu Zungu and defeated Shaka's army. This was the first of Shaka's losses. Tradition says that one day early in his reign, Shaka spotted an older man who was working as a serf around Mtania's Muzi, cooking for his mother Nandi. The man was odd-looking, thought Shaka, because he was what was called an Isantuti. He hadn't had his ears pierced or bobozat. In Zulu tradition, men have elaborate earrings, placing large wooden plugs in their lobes, which end up being stretched to fantastic lengths. Shaka ordered the man to have his ears pierced. He was an Kangalele Kavuyana, a man of the Butilesi clan, who was now working as a menial worker and cook at Mtania's place. He had been adopted, but was also honoured for being one of the earliest inhabitants of this Umuzi. As soon as his ears were pierced, he was symbolically a Zulu, and was brought into the inner circle. Nkengalele Kambuyana was a commoner made good, living the Zulu dream, so to speak. We'll hear lots more about him. Right now, it's time to conza the clock, so to speak, to halt for the episode. Next, we'll hear about Zwide, and then return to what was happening down south. The Albany thickets were going to be bloodied again, with Amatkoza chafing under British rule. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next, salagatli.